You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I don't know. I did the whole eight hours a day thing. You know, my degree was in guitar. I was there woodshedding with the metronome and it, it was intense and I didn't have much company and I was probably very lonely, but it did help me get fast. It did. But you know what? My best attribute as a player is not speed at all. It's the theory. It's the fact that, like, I can probably know when you can start playing your Phrygian dominant rather than your Phrygian Benny. I hope you're fucking listening. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? It's the major I form, you it's, not it's a mighty Phrygian. It's mighty Phrygian in here because the, the air conditioning is on and I'm, I'm feeling, I have Mixolydian feelings about it. <laughs> Beautifully done. I like that. My um, aeolians are, are erect, though. <laughs> well, just call me Dorian. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman, and you're listening to 2020. I'm here with my friends, my cohorts, my my, my hostages, Corey Peza <laughs> and Siobhan Cronin. We were hostages today. You had a couple of epic rants in this episode. Well, you know what? Amit Sharma as his name is, uh, who's one of the greatest writers on the planet doing the good work, writing about all the music that we love, including Lost Symphony, in magazines like Guitar World, Kerrang, Total Guitar, like actual magazines that you could still, despite the dystopian-like outside, go and buy in the airport. Well, he was really inspirational to talk to because besides being a great journalist, he's also a great musician, guitar player, went to school, friends with our other, with our other British ambassador, Richard Shaw. So we learned and, a lot about yeah. wearing many hats. Pretty in this colors. Episode. Yeah, and it, wasn't, it wasn't enough for him to you know, take over the you know, journalism guitar world and, and being an incredible musician. He also had to dip his toe into acting and then end up on you know, a little show like Game of Thrones. So, Casual. Yeah, he's, he's got his shit together. It's a great. So, without further ado, check it out. Part two with Amit Sharma right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of 2020. I'm here with my cohorts in crime, my podcast co-hosts, Corey Peza and Benny Goodman. How's it going, guys? going well caffeine's kicking in <laughs> caffeine is kicking in we're doing it earlier in the day because yeah. we have a special guest from across the pond our third british ambassador i guess we have amit sharma of kerrang guitar you world guess? Leg- I-, I guess i mean i don't know we, 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 deemed <laughs> we him haven't asked other- him officially well i'm asking him now will you be our other <laughs> british ambassador Oh, it would be my honor. Thank you. Only if you're the other one, though. You're our mistress <laughs> British ambassador. You're not the real one. Like as Steve Wood I, or Richard Shaw. As long as you all agree I'm the one with the best hair, that's completely <laughs> fine. That's completely fine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been so much fun. I really enjoyed that first chat. 
Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, we got some amazing stories. I mean, welcome back. It's so cool to talk to you. I didn't even realize that you're such a great guitar player. Of course, I know you as a writer. We've met before, as we referenced in the earlier episode. But it's so cool to hear Amit that you... Sharma from Guitar World, yeah. Kerrang, Total Guitar, and probably like 75 other things you've read <laughs> if you read. But if you're a guitarist, the irony is, is that you probably don't read. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Spe- speaking of that, real quick before we dive in, how is the print... Um, you know, music world doing in these days compared, you know, obviously with online and everything, what's, what's that look like? Uh, you know, I can't lie to you and say it's all hunky dory. It's, you know, far from that, but um, yeah, it's an interesting time we live in where perhaps uh, certain, certain titles might be struggling more than others. And it's hard as a music fan, like even the titles I don't write for, I don't want, Bad stuff happen to even if they're a competitive title to the ones I'm right for. I don't want, I don't want bad things happening. You know, it's good for music to have uh, all the magazines doing well. But yeah, it's been obviously quite tough. The whole online thing did change the system, but I think magazines are getting better at using the online. Uh, I don't know connectivity to kind of help sell the magazine. So that sometimes if I do an interview, they might ask for a quote ahead that goes in a news piece online directing people towards obviously buying the physical or the digital magazine you know i used to work at magazines and kind of that used to be part of my job uh i'm kind of glad that it's not anymore to be honest because like being a freelancer i get to kind of just do the fun stuff and put my heart and soul into the actual piece i think when you work full-time at a magazine you actually write less which sounds odd but um you you kind of get caught up in the whole politics of it all and I have to admit, there, there was a time where I was working full-time where, yeah, the politics was starting to kind of bring me down a bit. And, you know, it's it's not nice at magazines, too, when people get a bit competitive. And I don't know, it, it's, it, it gets a bit weird. I think when you're removed from that and you're working from home completely for yourself, you can just be in touch with your editors, but always in charge of your own workload. And... Yeah, you know, I have to admit, some magazines are struggling. Like, you know, some titles I write for have been suspended during COVID or some even completely cancelled, you know, forever. So, you know, it's I'm not going to say it's going great, but the impression that I get is that the gear magazines are doing very well uh, because right now, the whole lockdown thing, people have decided, okay, I want to do something with my fucking spare time. I want to <laughs> learn a trade. And if you're sat at home listening to Bon Jovi and Kiss all, all day long, it's literally going to take you five minutes to learn those songs. Uh, I'm interested yeah. that you said that because at the beginning of COVID, I noticed two things. So one, I did this personally. I went back, got my record player out because we were getting test printings of Lost Symphony. But when I did that, I'm like, I have all these albums I bought for $2 when people decide vinyl was stupid. All this vinyl, you'll pay $100 for each record on eBay. So people went back to vinyl and, and, and to listening to albums again, kind of. But also, I, I, I kind of moonlit at a guitar store for a while, a mom and pop store, a lot of which were going out of business. Guitar Center is now kind of going the way of the dodo. But during COVID, some of the people I've known who've been doing this 30 years did better than they have in 20, 25 years. And everyone came in every day and they're like, are you guys okay? You guys doing okay? As like my friend was just taking their money going, ah, buy another guitar, buy a ukulele. He's like, I've sold more ukuleles this month than I did in 30 fucking years. So 
What do you attribute? So you attribute that to COVID because a lot of people think that the less people are playing guitar, guitar is dying. But from all the things I'm reading, they're just getting them differently, whether it's through reverb or directly from the companies. And more people are playing and playing stuff like the ukulele, which years ago, like nobody played the uke. Have you seen the stuff going on with Fender at the moment? I mean, come on, they 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 had Fender Play that they invented as a a tool for people to to get into you know playing an instrument, and uh, and it's really really well thought out. They've turned that into a business model, and they've created like this whole new kind of new customer market where beginner guitars are just rocketing. Like it's insane. I interviewed the CEO of Fender uh, maybe about. A, a year ago and you know they've never sold as many guitars they're, they're beating their own records it's insane so even though we're thinking of oh, covid and you know people maybe all the struggles out there in the world politically as well because that does have a knock-on effect um no the guitar world is booming and you know a lot of those early instrument sales like those beginner models just think even if 10 percent go on to become lifers like we all clearly are then wow, that suddenly you're creating a new revenue stream. And so when I was interviewing the guy from Fender about it, you know, who's from, he's British as well. So he moved up to the States and he's been their CEO for, I think maybe about eight years or something. And he had worked for like Disney and like really big fucking companies beforehand. It was really interesting to talk to him about like music instruments, which are really passionate. It's this thing that we all love. But as like, I don't know, as an industry, uh, as a businessman who's able to actually find, you know, new ways to grow. And I think that's incredible. So I, I think, you know, there's so much gear still, still coming out. You'd think during COVID, people would stop releasing signature models and pedals. They're kind of, uh, there's shit tons coming out. I, I've been sent more than I ever have been, you know. And that's, you know, that's, that's another really cool thing about being a guitar journalist, you know, you sometimes get things into review that you might not be able to kind of buy yourself or you might get given a really good discounted rate or rock stars that you know might just send you a guitar in the post randomly you know um, who sent you a guitar give us an example of somebody who just sent, sent you a guitar oh so that nick johnston Schechter, <coughs> that's probably the newest guitar in my collection and he, he asked me what color did you want and i was just like <laughs> pink dude come on because <laughs> the other color was seafoam and i was like i love seafoam but it's like okay, i've already so got uh <clears throat> let me ask you this so you we've been talking about like pastel colors and all that sort of stuff so I feel like just like fashion trends, guitar trends go through phases where like for years people are like, you play a seafoam guitar, then they beat you up in a parking lot. And now people are like, dude, look at that seafoam guitar. And like, or I ordered the, <laughs> like, for example, John Mayer came out with a pink PRS in a video doing 80 stuff. And all of a sudden everyone's like, dude, are they coming out with a pink PRS? There's a pink one. And it's like, I've never seen people so excited, especially dudes for pink like what do you think what do you think it is man i don't know i guess i'm drawn to the corals i don't know i've always hated black guitars except for a les paul custom in black which i've got kind of towards black the back of the beauty and that is gorgeous because black and gold just go together so well but generally like Bruins. i know it's heavy metal guitar players love black guitars but i find them quite lifeless you know i i, I like to I don't know what I'm holding in my hands. I like it to, to look pretty and I, I like it to almost make me want to play it. 
Because you right. see this just lying in the corner, you're, you're not going to fucking walk past it, man. Like, <laughs> your phone could be ringing, someone could be at the door, and you'll be like, nah. <laughs> I'm just going to play guitar and fucking ignore them. Um, you know, uh, you're lucky that I even answered the phone when, when we did this interview, because I was just playing this guitar. It's really hard to put down. Luckily, yeah, so luckily you can still continue to play it while we interview you, so it works out, <laughs> it works out for everyone. Um, there you go. Um, but, you know, I live for it, I guess, and I... I think playing as a musician myself, because I've been in bands since I was 13 and we, I've even had records out and music videos and stuff. So I did try the music route. You know, I really did try being the lead guitar player on stage. And, you know, at one point we we're having radio play and we we're doing interviews and things were going pretty well, but fuck, it's tough out there. And I just thought for a more sustainable future in music, you know, maybe I won't be the person showing off my gear but maybe i'll be the person getting like you know seeing the gear show off too you know doing the interviews all around it and you know that kind of has been so much fun but uh you I, think the I proof of concept but no, but the proof of concept is like so we were going to do this interview and you go hey guys i'm sorry can we move the interview time i have to talk to jerry cantrell from yeah, Alice yes. in Chains, one of the greatest guitars of all time. Like, first off, as if I don't know who Jerry Cantrell. Like, come on, I love that guy. He's the fucking greatest. But you're, oh. if you're in a band, right, you're not going to do be playing with all these guys. You're not going to be talking to Slash and going, what do you think? But as a journalist, you not only get to <laughs> talk to Slash, to Zach Wilde, to Paul Gilbert, uh, John Petrucci innumerable times, you develop a rapport with those guys, you understand them. So do you find like it's almost more vindicating because like with Lost Symphony and with like even the show, I feel like we get to talk to people like Mark Tremonti, Steve Stevens, Satchel, like people we wouldn't normally fucking talk to just because we're signing on to an internet connection and have a good quality feed. And they're like, yeah, and they're telling us all this stuff. Yeah, and we also we not tricked them into thinking this was a legitimate uh, oh, yeah. avenue. <laughs> that, that was the key. That was the key. David Ellison was the first Grammy winner that we had on the, on the show that like we actually duped. We're like, yeah, he has a Grammy. Can we get a Grammy award winner? So now we, we can tell people we had Grammy award winning people on the show. <laughs> Uh, but th I mean, that's the truth, man. Like, you know, this is what it is. It's the science just, of the uh, podcast. I mean, you just named some more guitar players that I know and they're friends now. Steve Stevens, Mark Tremonti. He's another one. I interview him every fucking week, you know, and <laughs> nicest you know, like, fucking yeah, guy. We, He's the man. He's we the might. Man. Yeah. We might be on Zoom for like an hour or sometimes even longer and like literally only 20 minutes is the interview. The rest is just him showing me whatever pedal he's been fucking around with. He, yeah. he gave us, in my opinion, the most useful information that anybody has on any show that I would actually use is how he writes and records riffs. And, like, and then he archives them and puts them in like the formats and all of that. I'm like, that's brilliant because I am constantly rehashing old shit. I spend like three weeks on a song and I judge people on the songs they don't release. So right now, me and our drummer, Paul Lorenzo, probably have like a 23 disc box set as if like people are buying discs. 27 dat tapes uh, of unreleased music. Like we're pushing Prince levels. And like by the time we get to releasing it, like we usually already hate it. Okay. <laughs> no, but anyway, to, to dovetail on what you were saying, though, I feel like it all kind of, you know, it's it's sort of a holistic thing. I mean, I feel like even us interviewing people, it's helped me be a better musician. You know, even though it's not sitting down and practicing my instrument, some of the stuff that I've learned from these people, it really does actually help you in your art as well. You know, you, you learn so much from them. And most of them, like, are so gracious. You know, that, that whole never meet your heroes thing is bullshit. Like, 
there's barely any rock stars that I've like fallen out with. Or no, correction. Never meet your heroes as a plebeian in gen pop. Continue. <laughs> well, no, but I think a lot of that depends. You know, your experience probably depends on how you treat them and how good of an interviewer you are and how authentic you are in the way you speak to them. I mean, I'm sure that people have varying degrees of experiences. Well, well don't you famous- think people are trying to be nice? Because, okay, my fr- we're friends with Ernie Bach, and he all the time says, oh, Dave Mustaine's the nicest guy. He's the greatest guy. He's so gracious. He's so friendly. Uh, and I'm like, probably, I don't... You should probably state who Ernie Bach is for those who don't Ernie know. Bach, yeah, outside yeah, Ernie Bach Jr. <laughs> is a billionaire... Uh, car guy. He's a car mogul. He's a philanthropist. He's building right now a medical center in Uganda. Like, the guy's fucking out of his mind awesome. He's got, like, the craziest car collection ever. But, of course, Dave Mustaine loves him. So, like, it, you know, Ernie's always like, oh, he's so great and all that. I'm like, I've met him, like, 23 times, and he's not once been nice to me. Never once uh. has Dave Mustaine ever left a good impression on me. He's like, no, he's great. And then we went to the Hendrix experience, and Dave Mustaine and I and Ernie and his son were all standing there for, like, 15 minutes. And then Dave just looks at me and goes, is there a reason you're standing here? <laughs> In front of Ernie. Ernie's like, isn't he oh. great? And I'm like, you didn't even introduce me, you douchebag. Like, what the fuck? He's standing there like, what? Why are you even here, dude? So we're talking about Dave Mustaine. I have to say he is nearly at the very top of my list of people to interview that I love to speak to. He is an absolute sweetheart, Benny. I don't know what you said to him. I don't know what T-shirt you were wearing. Dude, but uh, to me, he is like so sweet to the point where I've even ended up doing uh, like bio work for his label. So that's another thing that I get to do. As a result of being a journalist, um, if you get the artist's you know, that if they end up kind of liking you or if you if you get to know the people at their label, which obviously I have to do as part of my job, uh, they'll ask you to do bio work. And that is so much fun. So some of my favorite bands have come to me saying, oh, you know, can you do like a, a 2,000, 3,000 word bio for this new uh, release that we've got coming out or for our new uh, website that we're doing or whatever. And I love doing stuff like that. because well, that's good to me, know, that's... man. We've actually hired a few of those guys to write our releases because, look, I write, but I write like I talk, so people are usually like, gotta go. Um, <laughs> it's good to know. Like That's a very important thing. So all the time, bands listening and people and artists and all that, like, what do I do? How do I do it? You hire a guy like Amit to fucking write your your bio so you can make it sound good. Kind of like, you know, um, Nikki Six going to Neil Strauss, who's one of the greatest writers of our fucking time, and saying, here's the Motley Crue story, and Neil going, okay, let's make this story b- way better. Totally. Uh, well, I don't know if I'm that good, but, uh, you know, that's part of the kind of fun, I guess. You know, new avenues open as you become a journalist and as you become more and more established for various titles, and all of the ones I write for, like, international, like, big titles, you know, the, the biggest of what they do, you know, naturally... If you're lucky, I guess you, you kind of do get more of that bio work. So I've done so much of that. And here's the funny thing. You know, we were talking earlier about how I didn't end up becoming a musician and I became a journalist instead. Well, who would have thought this? Becoming a journalist got me as a musician. <laughs> so it kind of, it did a loop-de-loop. So uh, by writing for Bass Player, I got an email from my boss one day being like, do you want to play for Stu Hamm from G3 and Steve Vai? And, uh, you know, Joe Satriani's band. And I, I, I looked up his band. It was like, well, Alex Skolnick is the normal guitar player in that band. Yeah. Uh, why isn't Alex doing it? And they're like, I, I don't know, uh, whatever, but he, we, he, he, you know, do you want to do it? 
He's playing like, jazz at the Iridium. That's why he's not doing it. He's playing jazz with his trio at the Iridium. But, but the best thing was he was playing jazz in London <laughs> the same day. So he couldn't do it. So I did the gig and then came to watch Alex play, which was so weird. So I'm sat there, you know, with Alex after the set, with Stu Ham going, yeah, sorry, man, I nicked your gig. Like, you couldn't do it. And he was like, oh, dude, it's all good. You know, thank you for filling in. <laughs> that's, you know? that's funny. You actually bring up a that's very amazing. good point because a lot of people ask, like, what's the best thing to do? And it's, it's always have a real job that enhances your fake job. So people are like, how do you have these crazy guitars and all that? You think it's because I'm in a band? No, I DJ, dude. I play Earth, Wind, and Fire September, and it wins every time. <laughs> Corey has made $500 to play four songs just over and over and over. And be like, Ben, you're missing the chords. I'm like, they don't care. Get me some Alaskan <laughs> crab. And like, that's the truth. And then those people come up to you, and they're like, wait, you could play piano and DJ? And then I get a $700 tip. Like, that happens. Whereas nobody, no band ever has got a $700 tip for killing it playing fucking Jovi. And that's the truth is. So that's why being a writer is probably better. I had Marco, the, one of the greatest fucking cellists in my life, in the world, not in my life, in my life, but also in the world, who came on our <laughs> show and I sent you the song. That's the first thing I ever did with her because we did the show. I said, hey, you want to jam sometime? She's like, sure. And sends me this insane cello stuff. No one would ever go, hey, Benny, because you play this fucking sparkly Ibanez, you're going to go play with the fucking greatest cellist this side of Japan. Like, and that sounds like it's, it's the same thing with you. You write with people and then they go, wow, he's a cool dude. He can actually play. And then you get the gig and Skolnick's like, not a big deal. Well, that's the thing. It's a multifaceted industry. You know, it's uh, so much of our careers is who we interact with, how we are as people, even more so than how we are as musicians, you know, so that, that I'm sure that's a huge component. The way it fed back into the guitar playing, though, was uh, kind of blew my mind. And then uh, another session gig I got was playing for um, Glenn Matlock, who is from the Sex Pistols. He was the original kind of Sex Pistols bass player that wrote, you know, that groundbreaking album. And I had to play guitar for him and I went around his house to um to learn the set list and you know he's kind of playing me stuff like God Save the Queen and stuff like that he's like you must know that right and I was like I probably heard it on the radio once like I do I do not listen to punk so I, I literally had to hold my hands up and say dude I listen to progressive shred metal like I, I do not listen to punk at all but don't worry, I can play your riffs. It'll be fine. <laughs> and oh, the that, but, but did it sound good, too good, though? Because I'll, I'll give you an example before you, you, you explain your example. Because have you heard Dream Theater <laughs> do Metallica? Like, the, they do Master of Puppets in its entirety. And it's disconcerting because yeah. we all know, or at least people that understand theory that Metallica speed up and slow down in Master of Puppets. It's not some ingenious time thing. They're just on cocaine. Whereas, like, Dream Theater, like, we're going to subdivide it like Russia. We're going to play it perfect. Like, John Petrucci can't even imitate Kirk Hammett's uh, vibrato because Kirk Hammett's vibrato is so unique to Kirk Hammett that no, no guitar player like Joe Satriani, I don't want to say, can change it, but can change their vibrato to what Fade to Black sounds like. Is that... How do you do that for punk? How do you go into a punk band and progressive guitars and play punk where you're supposed to suck? It's a... Uh, well... It's funny, uh, I obviously did that Tom DeLonge interview and he told me the secret to playing punk guitar was masturbating. I wish he'd told me that before I got this gig, you know, because <laughs> I, I just had a good night's sleep and, you know, I woke up in the morning and I, you know, I did the show and I learned the thing. But now 
had I um, followed Tom's advice, maybe I would have played a better set. But no, it went well. It was fine. You know, the the thing is, I learned the riffs and stuff, and they were quite easy. And he gave me solo sections, and he actually didn't mind me kind of going into lead guitar mode because, as it turns out, he got to join one of his favourite bands late in his career after the Sex Pistols, which is the basis. He actually got to join them. Um, awesome. So he he loved that whole classic rock kind of side of playing and because i'm such a huge slash fan uh like benny you know i love that style i, I just love being a little bit maybe a little bit sloppy not metro metronomic you know as much as i love you know Ingve and all those guys sometimes it's just so fun to just hold that note and do that big bend and bless him glenn glenn let me do that so what we ended up doing was playing this kind of set that was kind of a mixture of punk and maybe some classic rock stuff. And we even covered uh, I Want You Back. Like, you know, the Jackson, uh, Jackson 5. Five. Yeah. That's my favorite song. And, and, and Corey completely knows um, that every DJ set that I've ever played, almost ever, at every wedding, I always go on and I tell people, if I'm going to dance naked in front of a mirror and sing to myself after the shower, it's to this song. And it's I Want You Back by the Jackson 5, which <laughs> I also argue is the greatest bass line in the history of the game. Of course, the guitars, however, are fucking boring because it's just not <laughs> optical. No, yeah. dude, I and didn't so, say because it, it doesn't. <laughs> there doesn't need to be a guitar because there's Michael Jackson and a bass line and some fucking drums, and that song grooves like nobody's fucking business. Totally. But what, what what happens when you put Michael Jackson and Slash together? You get given to me. Oh my god! Let's talk or about black that. Black or white? Ah, oh, for sure, for sure. Those um, you know, those tracks informed. Me as much as like maybe all the harder rock stuff. I love it when Benny's rocking out. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, wanna, I don't I even wanna... know if he's plugged in. But <laughs> no, I it... wanted to jump back to asking you about interviewing for a second. So in our prior episode, we talked about how you approach interviewing people that you've talked to multiple times. I'm curious about when you're talking to someone for the first time, how you go about researching or figuring out what you want to ask them so that it's it's not something that someone else at another magazine or in another interview has already talked about because you know for us that's something i have to think about when we're talking to people that i don't know you know go on the internet do some research if it's somebody i don't know or i'm not a fan of already it's it's hard to figure out an angle when you're first starting out on how to extract something that hasn't already been said out there well each title will have its own area of interest you know you've got to think if I'm doing a piece for, you know, something that's a bit more of a straight magazine like Kerrang! or, you know, when I was writing for Planet Rock or Classic Rock and Metal Hammer and those magazines, you know, they're certainly more just about the story of the band. You know, what has that writer been through? The Usually the singer, generally. But, you know, you've got to tailor the piece to who who's going to be printing it. You know, so that's the first thing I'm going to be thinking about. What magazine is this getting printed in? And what's the voice of that magazine? Some magazines have a really, really kind of young, fresh, contemporary voice. Other ones are really guarded. Like they hold their artists really, really far away. You only call them by the surname because that's the proper thing to do, you know, to establish some distance. And you're right. You know, when you're interviewing someone for the first time, you you don't really know how it's going to go. But I, I would say having a very good understanding of their newest work will always help. So that's why I sit at home like for a couple of hours before I do the interview and I'll, I'll learn every riff. I'll, I'll literally learn every... It, it doesn't even take me long unless it's Dream Theater, in, in which case it takes me like a decade. 
that's all. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Most of the time, it's pretty easy, and I find yeah, the the musicality and just listening is really, really important. Obviously, you have to go on Google. Obviously, you're gonna have to like maybe even check Wikipedia. I know it sounds so basic. We all laugh about it, but trust me, you're, you're going to check Wikipedia when you're getting. Well, no, that's not true ears. because you're from a you're from a time where Guitar World, for example, was the only way people could find out about musicians. Now we're in this hyper fast world where you can read articles everywhere. You can watch podcasts. You can go onto YouTube. We have all these channels. So, like you know, Nuno Betancourt, when I've talked to him, you know, there, there's you could see a disdain about towards all these super you know technical guys that play 45 seconds on Instagram. You know what I mean? Because they've been able to learn Eddie Van Halen or even his techniques since, you know, they were born. Whereas back in the day, you had to like know somebody or even Jimmy Bell, who came on our show, said that when he heard Van Halen, he went home and figured it out and would, was blowing people's minds by finger tapping before anyone really like realized it's a thing you can do pretty easily. Not totally. like Eddie, but just in general. Yeah. Totally. Speaking of Eddie, he, um, he would probably be the one person... That's no longer around that. I, I really wish I got the chance to interview and see live, you know, because of my age, I never got to see Van Halen over here in England. Um, and it's sad. I know Download Festival, I know the guy that runs it quite well, and I know he tried so hard to get Van Halen over, like it, throwing crazy sums of money at them. And it just, it, for some weird reason, it never worked out. And even obviously the reunion tour when they did it, with Diamond Dave, that, that, that kind of got cut short to some extent too. But uh, but yeah, man, such a huge fan of Van Halen. I mean, literally, he is like the Beethoven of guitar. You know, I feel like after Hendrix, it was really Van Halen. And like the only person that I think you could say belongs in that conversation after that would really be Stevie, Stevie Ray Vaughan or Steve Vai. Because those guys and Malmsteen really just changed the world. Um, but yeah, it's just a case of like listening. You know, I think a lot of a lot of writers out there, I don't know, they might not be musicians like me, so they might just listen to music as the fan. And I, I think that actually is harder. I, I can't imagine doing my job without being like a nerd. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. how would you sit there? Listen to songs now, because like, I, I back in the day, like I'll give you an example. I, I you know listen to a band like Green Day, and I just be like, okay, this is a cool song. Welcome to paradise. And I, now I go back. I go, wow, listen to the guitar tone. Listen to how sick that bass is locked in with the drums. And I'm like, that's why it's brilliant. Like, the production and playing on this is fucking unreal. But I can't unhear my ability to tear it apart. So if I hear a new song, I'm like, wow, Cardi B's got really good mastering. Like, I can <laughs> feel the sub bass. Like, so even then, like, my brain goes into, even though I don't like this song, holy crap, listen to how, how huge it sounds. <laughs> Totally. You just got to follow your ears, you know. Like I say, being a journalist is quite weird because some, some artists might actually feel a bit like, I don't know, not fully nervous around you, but they might not completely trust you. And I, I definitely think when you're writing for the non-gear mags, they definitely treat you like that, unless they know you. Whilst, you know, I, I'm lucky, you know, if, like, I'm turning up for a Total Guitar or a Guitar World interview... There is no barrier at all. People love talking about their gear. They know that I'm not there to try and find out about their divorce. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or anything yeah. like that. But some titles I write for, but they want the divorce. You yeah. know? So, <laughs> yeah. so I've got to like, you know, I've got to tailor it to each magazine. You've got to think, what's the angle? What, what are people most interested in? 
like hair. Yeah. Hair. Yeah. Well, you Are mentioned, you, oh, girl. you oh, mentioned sorry, that um uh you know some some interviewers come at it as a fan, whereas you're really more of you're you're an industry peer because you do play, um, and you have that like kind of shared experience. And actually, and just to step away for just a moment, I hope I'm not throwing you off, Siobhan. You mentioned that uh, you have experience as a session musician. Um, you know that alone kind of puts you in in a pretty unique category that's beyond just journalists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's kind of. A bit of a case of, yeah, I've been waiting years for Axel Rose to call me. I think he's got someone better in at the moment. But uh, I don't know. Uh, it's something that I love to do. So any time I've heard of an opportunity to, to kind of go for it, having been in bands my whole life, uh, I've taken it. So, you know, Stu Ham is one of the greatest bass players of all time. You know, playing for Steve Vai, I mean, Richie Kotzen, Joe Satriani, G3. There's just so many of those classic Shred albums that he was on. And I know my set for him is like, I'm backing him. So it's like, I'm the lead guitar player in a band that's backing the lead bass player. But he let me play, you know, solos and stuff. And one of the songs he had recorded, Alan Holdsworth had actually played the solo on. So <laughs> I had to kind of... Oh, Skolnick said the same thing. That's funny, because in, in the interview, when we interviewed Skolnick, he was like, yeah, so I played with Stu Ham." And I had to do an Alan Holdsworth solo. And you know that that's like real deal. So it's funny that <laughs> as a guy that filled in for Skolnick at one time, you're still talking about the same fucking solo. Yeah, it's a, it's a nasty, nasty deal. Like the whole tone scale, it's so far removed from maybe what rock players that may be more kind of minor or pentatonic based. It's, it's so different. And I've really tried to go down that way of thinking because I love outside fusion players uh you know there's a guy called pliny from australia oh, yeah. i absolutely adore he's they're crazy the band is nuts yeah and um I, I i just love that kind of music but with alan you know he's the only guy that steve Vai has ever said to me in an interview like you know what like i bow to him like and he said something so true to me and steve basically said in about 200 years from now we're going to be decoding Alan's music and solos and still <laughs> learning. And that's so true. Like, to quote Steve, the guy was literally from another planet. So, um, with, so with the, the Stu Ham stuff, is, is that, was that just live or any, any actual recording work? Or? It's just live. So just did you do, do any actual, like, like recording session work? Is um, I've done it kind of mainly in my own projects, but the last kind of big release that I was part of, I actually traded solos with a member of Slayer. So that was released by Earache Records and internationally released. And I'm on one track and my solo ends where Gary Holtz begins. So it's like passing the baton. It's crazy. You know, that was the best answer. I was like, what guitars is he talking about? Hanneman? Is he talking about Kerry King? And then all of a sudden you're like Gary Holt. And it was weird to hear Gary Holt play Jeff Hanneman because look, I love Slayer what they do. But, like, no one's going, oh, at least for me, like, I'm not going, Carrie King, the way he constructs a solo, it's just so musical. And I just, I, that's how I learned how to be, like, Beethoven. Like, it's just not it. And hearing Gary Holt play, like, uh, uh, Jeff Hanneman, where Jeff was, like, you know, a certain type of player, Gary's, like, so much more finesse and such a, like, to me, he's an, a, a level above for me as a guy watching two dudes separately. Like when I saw Jeff Hanneman live and I see Gary Holt, I'm like, wow, Gary Holt's fucking amazing. But it was straight strange because when I saw Gary with Slayer for the first time, it was the most musical Slayer had ever sounded to me. I, I would have to agree with you, man. Like Gary is 
just incredible. And I have to admit, for me, like I grew up with like bands like this on my posters, you know, as a kid, you know, and I was like starting out. So can you imagine my face when one day I saw a press release on Blabbermouth with my name next to like, you know, a member of Slayer, you know, as like one of the featured guests on this track. Uh, it was my friend, Old Drake, who plays in a band called Evil, and he put together his first solo album. And the weird thing is, again, the journalism is what connected us because I'd interviewed him as a journalist and then he figured out I was a shredder. So we'd just fucking swap licks and stay in touch. And then one day, you know, he kind of, and I was feeling quite down and I'm not a depressive guy at all. I'm always like annoyingly happy. I wake up <laughs> at like 6 a.m. and I'm like, yes, I'm alive. But That's like, amazing. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know crazy. what's crazy is that he's in is that you're interviewing me for Guitar World, right? And like I'm watching you play, I'm like, he's so much better than me. <laughs> like, oh, so we're talking about Lost Symphony, and you're just going on, and you're giving me all this amazing praise, and then you're just shredding my face off, and I'm just like, okay, man, you could keep saying I'm good. <laughs> well, yeah, let me ask you about that. How do you like manage to stay, keep your chops up, and practice a lot? I mean, obviously, you're super busy as a journalist and traveling and writing, but you're clearly like still playing a lot and very engaged in it. How do you, I guess maybe you're just an early riser and you have a lot of energy, but that seems like so much to keep up with. It's hard to keep up that level of, you know, dexterity and speed. Maybe to some extent, I guess, but like, I don't know. I did the whole eight hours a day thing. You know, my degree was in guitar, I was there woodshedding with the metronome and it, it was intense and I didn't have much company <laughs> and I was probably very lonely but it did help me get fast it did but you know what my best attribute as a player is not speed at all it's the theory it's the fact that like I can probably know when you can start playing your Phrygian dominant rather than your Phrygian Benny I hope you're fucking listening <laughs> Uh, do you know what I mean? It's the major form. It's, it's, it's mighty Phrygian in here because the, the air conditioning is on, and I'm I feeling I have Mixolydian feelings about it. <laughs> Beautifully done. I like that. My um, Aeolians are, are erect, though. <laughs> well, just call me Dorian. <laughs> Well, speaking um, of, of musicality, not uh, sorry. Go ahead if you want to finish what you were saying. Didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. No, 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 no. I guess ladies that's... first. Yeah, please tell me. Tell <laughs> well, me. no, I was going to ask. Well, speaking of musicianship and guitar playing, so you, the three of us interviewing you are in a band called Lost Symphony, and I'm curious to hear, you know, as a, a music lover, a journalist, a musician, a guitar player, you know, what are your thoughts about Lost Symphony and some of the music that we've done? We're curious to as hear what David your thoughts Lee Roth. Are. Tell us about us. I'm, uh, I'm going to quote myself. Because, I, you know, I said something very, very cool to Benny on Instagram earlier. And when I listened to your latest music, I'm not joking, it reminded me of Triumphant Hearts by Jason Becker. And it's the, the sheer finesse and the open floodgates for creativity. It's the fact that you're not just doing the shred thing or you're not going too cheesy classical either. It's the fact that it feels like human music. And I guess there's a huge film score element to what you do in Lost Symphony. And that's where it really comes through. And when I heard Jason's, uh, you know, latest album, because I got to interview him as well, of course, it blew me away. I think it was one of the most passionate and emotive albums I've ever heard. And you know why? It's because it went way beyond just rock and blues. It sounded like Cirque du Soleil at fucking points. I mean, the second track's a soul track. 
and uh, that's what I love. It's very all-encompassing, and like uh, I think your um, your your work's very similar. That's why I like it. It's right up my street because it's you guys are clearly such incredible musicians, but there's a message, you know. And I think that's one thing that gets lost with say musicians when they get past a certain speed, you know. Even you know violinists, especially like when you're fucking going for it. It's like, wow, that is, that is fast. But what are you saying? What are you saying? That's, what, that's why Marty Friedman's like the best metal shredder of them all. Because what he says with his bends, it's so emotive. And actually, that's the thing that connects Marty to Slash. They're bends. They're, they hang on to those bends and they milk them. And they know when to do them. And uh, Richie Cotson will do that as well. He'll, he'll, yeah, he'll do all that finger stuff and blow your mind with his kind of seventh arpeggios. And that's really important. You've got to learn your seventh arpeggios. But I'll tell you what, when it's those, it's catching the listener off guard. And that's what I love about certain guitar players and musicians. And, you know, what you guys are doing is so inspiring. I mean, hearing a track with like Nuno on it, for fuck's sake. I, I think from your point of view, you had some such amazing musicians on this project so far. But when I saw a press release about Nuno, that's when like, I was like, holy shit, this Lost Symphony stuff is fucking serious this is a big deal you know because like not Nuno doesn't do stuff like that and when I interviewed him like uh, well, he told us after, he doesn't do stuff like that a lot of times did he tell you that <laughs> exactly you, you said no me. so many ways he, I was like how did you get involved he's just like Benny wouldn't leave me alone he just fucking pounded <laughs> me man I literally haunted him. Like every time he was so nice to me, like the first three times he's like, but I just don't do that. And then I'm like, Paul, Paul Geary, who's the, the ex drummer of extreme and manages like Johnny Depp and Joe Perry. I'm like, Paul, I just want Nuno. Can, can you play? And, and like, look, I DJed Paul's wedding. I did all these other things. I got to play with literally, I played on stage with Nuno and, and Brad Whitford from Aerosmith and Gary Sharon and Barry Goudreau from fucking Boston because of Paul. And I'm just like, are you going to play on my song? The whole time, like, are you gonna play it in my song? Please, please, just play it in my song. He's like, "Fucking Betty, stop!" I smack him in the face with a microphone and almost knock out his teeth. And then I'm so apologetic. At first, he's mad at me, but then he's like, "Betty, just shut up. You're fine. I know you didn't mean to do it." Like, I have to out Nuno, Nuno, and that's the thing. Is like, I basically had to like be a velociraptor to get him to do anything because he doesn't want anything to do with me. But I love him so much, he has no choice. Totally. I mean, I did joke with him that, like, in England, I probably look a bit like his younger but way less attractive brother. Do you know what I mean? We, we could almost be related. He's got nice hair. I've got nice hair. Um, what, a, what a huge influence on me. And so, honestly, for you guys, like, congratulations. Like, the music is incredible. It's otherworldly. I guess that's the, the word I'd be looking for to describe it first off. I uh, know it's like quite an obvious and easy word, but it really is because it's just so much more in terms of dimension and dynamics. And there's just this really absorbing, immersive quality to it. I think you, you're going to wonder where this track's going. And I love the surprises. And, you know, that's the beauty of music. You know, we're all speaking this weird language and we all have our own kind of accent. And I love accents because in England we have more per region than anywhere else in the world. You can go half an hour that way and people will sound a little bit different. And when you go two hours drive up that way, that's a different country, man. They don't speak the same language. <laughs> like, honestly, there are parts of England where like all of us would struggle to, to really interpret what the locals are trying to comprehend. Or <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's wild. Quite, 
it is wild. Um, but that's the beauty of music. So, yeah, you guys have been doing some great things. So I'm in the middle of this feature. I interviewed Benny about it, and then I had Nuno. I'm sorry. Just like, ah! <laughs> but the funny sorry, thing I said to Benny was that he really reminded me of Satchel because he's a larger-than-life kind of crazy personality. <laughs> and like I said, I've spent so much time with Satchel and Russ. I feel like I know them separately. Like, you know, Well, Skolnick, been- when he came on the show, he said, I can't believe such a goofy person's behind such serious music. It's like yeah, that was quote. a funny thing. Because yeah. Blabbermouth was like all over it, you know, with a lot of the things he said. But I'm like, the funniest thing he said was just like, again, like, uh, you know, because we don't have a lead singer. So I have to be the David Lee Roth from behind the piano. And it's not possible. <laughs> well, it's working. Whatever you're doing, dude, it's like, <laughs> it's absolutely insane. And the fact that you're kind of getting more and more coverage and the fact that you're getting bigger and bigger artists to collaborate with you guys, you know, it's what you're doing is something that caught my interest. And like I said, I'm at a stage where I don't really say yes to everything that I probably get offered or, you know, when my editors email, sure. you know, like, so like that I listened to and I was like, oh, that's well up my street. And then, you know, I, I knew that Nuno would probably be up for talking too. And what a fun conversation. And there, that you know, that conversation ended with me listening to half the new Extreme album, which is, you know, is an awesome? absolute like, I actually wrote to Nuno. I texted him afterwards because I saw your post, and I'm like, wait, I don't get to hear the new Extreme? Didn't write me back. I'm kind of fucking annoyed. Like, dude, <laughs> it's pushing, what, it's, what is it, 2009? It's one year away from Chinese democracy. It's one <laughs> year away from Chinese democracy. They what, Three years ago in Blabbermouth, weren't they all in a car listening to the new album? Why can't Nuno play me the new extreme? He, he likes you better. I'm telling you, he likes you. He clearly likes you better. How is it? Is it great? Is it amazing? Is it the best thing yet? I want to hear. Oh, my Can God. Play so I'm, not, I'm not allowed to. I could. I could actually play it for you, but I'll probably get sued. So I, I think it'd be a big no-no. Oh, you'll definitely be soon. You know, be like, oh, this is the way where you get this finance. But, but he, um, you know, he did say to me, look, dude, don't be a dick and fucking share it. But as you actually Sounds like he's from Boston. And you've clearly spent time trying to learn my music and really show an interest. I think there was that level of trust. And I'd only interviewed Nuno once before and the reception was really bad. So, you know, that rapport that I was talking about. From him building, or the phone? <laughs> both because they're okay, part of the same fair enough. because I tell you what when the phone reception's shit like it's not good how was the conversation with me like 10 minutes ago pretty crap <laughs> because the fucking internet went you know it's like it gets frustrating it gets like oh you don't really I don't know I felt like he was the one that got away so the, the second conversation that I had with him about his involvement with Lost Symphony but of course he did we did talk about his kind of history as a guitar player too because I might be able to use those quotes, you know, on a Nuno article elsewhere one day. And he, he totally okayed that. He was like, yeah, yeah, ask me whatever you want. You know, and like, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready for bed. This conversation's gone on for ages. And then right at the end of the chat, he's like, so do you want to hear the new Extreme album? I'll, I'll play you like half the tracks if you want. And that's actually quite scary to sit there and say, okay, this guy's watching me. It's like listen. Kanye West going, hey man, you, <laughs> you like this mean? beat? And like, Eventually, we were just air drumming and fucking having fun. I don't feel like it's my place to really say anything about the music because I know all the track titles and I've sure, heard half of it. Enough. Did but you enjoy it? What I will say, and I know he'll allow me to say it, is that, wow, there are some surprises. Oh, my God, Extreme have never, ever sounded like this before. And, like, it's, it's not pornography, like, times two. It's not, like, three sides to every story, part four. 
It's no, it's like literally its own beast. And when he rips on this album, it's like crazy shreddy too. So it's everything that you love from Extreme, but there, there are things in there that really caught me off guard. And as a fan, as a musician, and as a journalist, those are all things that I'm looking for. That ticks like every box and every hat that I wear. Do you know what I mean? Because I do feel like I'm wearing quite a lot of hats at times and kind of changing from magazine to... Well, they make it easy because yeah. if you listen to Three Sides to Every Story, the second side of it is just them in like, was it Electric Lazy Ladyland Studios with Brian May or like what, Abbey Road or something like that with an orchestra playing extreme. So you have Nuno and May and an orchestra. So basically where he says he's not interested in doing Lost Symphony for years, he already <laughs> did Lost Symphony. I just ripped him off. I ripped off the second side of Extreme and just said, I can't afford Brian May. He doesn't want to, he can't dumb himself down to me, but maybe I can club Nuno. And there we are. You have taken another piece with Marty Friedman, Alex Skolnick, Richard Shaw, Kelly, who is one of the greatest guitarists. You, you know, you were saying three notes of string and all that stuff. I encourage you to go watch Kelly because he is one of the most... Te like he's like okay I'm gonna play with Marty Friedman and Nuno on a he's song he's so clean yeah uh, maybe I need to write something so you go and read the comments it's like 10,000 comments oh my god Nuno's the best Marty and Nuno I never thought I'd see the day and then it's Who's that Edgar Winter guy that's just fucking killing it and that's because Kelly is the dude that beats the chess master yeah. like Kelly he's the machine Kerouac is the last name the uh, guitarist for Lost Symphony <laughs> for anyone that may not be familiar he is the primary guitarist in Lost Symphony yeah. He doesn't get any feature thing because he is our guitarist. So like, I feel bad because then like when you see Take Another Piece, it's like Richard Shaw, Alex Skolnick, Marty Friedman, you know, Betancourt. But it's like Kelly's the redundancy because he's the one that we're like, if we're going to put someone against Jeff Loomis, because one of the things that I knew, because we did a, an homage quietly to Cacophony, we got a song where it's Marty Friedman and Jeff Loomis. And I didn't really tell Marty I wanted to do it for Jason, but come on, the closest thing for me if someone's going to, it'd be either, it would be Jeff Loomis. He's the closest thing if I was going to think of it. So we did that. And then there's a whole section where Kelly is sweet picking along like arpeggios with Jeff Loomis. And I say to myself, that's literally like someone going to the summit of Mount Everest and going, look, look, look what I could do. And that's Kelly because we put him against everybody. You, you look at all those people. This is basically American Ninja Warrior for the <laughs> Canadian guitarist that is Kelly Carolock. That's amazing. That's amazing. So when you're doing a writing for, let's say, Guitar World and you're doing a piece on Lost Symphony or somebody in particular, do, is, you, you know, you've mentioned that you have to kind of keep the the image or the, the goal of the magazine in mind. But do you get any sort of guidance from editors or is it just from experience writing with the magazine, like what your angle is going to be? Like, is it are you looking for a particular answer to a certain question when you're going into the interview from like the magazine, let's say? I guess when I started out, I got a lot more in terms of briefs and quite detailed at points. So you, you just kind of get a second sense of these things. Like now I've gotten to the point where a lot of my editors don't even fucking like, tell me anything. I don't even know how big it's going to be. They're just like, yeah, you're talking to whoever on Friday. There you go. Have fun. <laughs> I'm going to loop you in now. So I think they know generally I'm going to go at it hard. Like it's, very rare for me to do an interview where I haven't like learned as much as I can out the scales and riffs that I'm hearing on the album. And I honestly think that's just the big key to it really. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I'm lucky that I come from like beyond the guitar world as well, in terms of like, I've written for magazines that aren't music instrument led at all. 
and in a weird way that kind of that kind of to the geeky kind of guitar based magazines that that's almost like my strength the fact that i've kind of written completely outside of it but obviously my forte is talking about getting I mean, look at my home you know this is my little studio at home it's like clearly there's something that i love and it's something that i live for so do you know what? it doesn't it's not a job really in that sense you know i guess the hard bit the worst thing about my life is transcribing i fucking hate transcribing man like <laughs> it's like all these years on like we we've got robots that can like do surgery right that go inside and take the cancer out right little spiders that crawl inside and come out and you're fine and you get to live for another like 50 years or when did you discover the power of an ellipsis? Because I remember interviewing Jordan Rudis as a child, like a child, I mean like 14 or 15, like when he just joined Dream Theater. And when I released the interview, I had the entire interview down to the uhs and the ands and the blah, blah, blah. And he goes, this is the most accurate interview I've ever read. Because I didn't understand about editing or you could use an ellipsis just to be like, here's how they continue the idea. Or you, syntax to be like, this is what he meant or this is who he's referring to. I just literally wrote out the I, like the 37 minutes of the 90-minute high bias cassette that I had of Jordan Rudis. Like, did you ever have that moment where you're like, I have to do everything. I have to be totally accurate. I have to do everything. Ah! Yeah, totally. I think you get so confident as a writer when it comes to paraphrasing. I'm really not scared about it. You know, like when you see brackets and stuff like that, I think it looks ugly. Why would someone buy a magazine or go on a website to see like all the stuff that you're trying to put in context for the artist you're working with? Like, I'm not going to lie and say you went to Burger King when you went to McDonald's. Like, I'll, I'll get it right. But come on, like if I'm writing a piece, I'm, I'm going to put some of it, my words in your voice to probably make you mm. sound more eloquent. Like there are even some bands that I've interviewed that, don't have English as their first language. So you know what, I, I would rather have them speak in the Queen's English for their sake, so that when people are reading it, they're getting a message from the, uh, sure. the article, you know, rather than- the Queen's English, that's a new one. I love it, the Queen's Maybe. English. From now on, that's we always speak in the Queen's English on this show, because we go to university. <laughs> <laughs> and because I'm from the South of the UK, this is, you know, we, we speak the Queen's English, you know. The further up north you get, the more it becomes like its own fucking it's thing. It's pikey. It's pikey. <laughs> and that then you get to where like, my family's from in Scotland, and it's just unintelligible. <laughs> it's like in Bruges. Beautiful. Yeah, I love. I've got family in Scotland too, near uh, Glasgow. So yep. uh, Dumbarton is Loch, not uh, Loch Lomond, uh -huh. just around there. So I've, is that I've your spent Loch a lot of Ness monster. Not far, dude. It's not far. But um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time there. And like I say, you know, it's just the UK is beautiful, man. Like, Are they know. on lockdown there too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the Scottish, Locked you know. Lockdown. <laughs> yeah, see what you did there. Um, but yeah, when well, I saw your name, Siobhan, I thought you were from Ireland, actually. It's, it's an Irish name. Yeah, I just got an Irish first name, but uh, totally Scottish. <laughs> Well, you look like Khaleesi. He said he was on Game of Thrones. I want to just quickly segue. How the hell did you end up on Game of Thrones? And what season can I go watch you like right now after the show? Or maybe I know, I on my know. other monitor while this is happening. Okay, so basically, uh, I'm 36 years old, right? And when I was 32, maybe about four years ago. Is that the metric around... system? <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, kilometers? I, I basically wondered if I was like, not fulfilling like some other destiny in life. 
And my work was going great. It wasn't like out of depression or sadness or disappointment at all. I literally just thought, fuck it. Why don't I just roll the dice and try something completely random, right? And then I thought, okay, well, what about acting? What's acting about? I think I remember you. you. And uh, no, you don't. Um, (laughs) Because it it was like, I don't know. I just thought I'd try something different, right? And then, uh, so I only did like four or five things in this short, like one year space of like random acting work. And like a couple of things were adverts. One was a film that just got released. That's like a Riz Ahmed film. So he's like a, a famous actor here in England. And he, I think you guys should know him because he's been in Star Wars and stuff. Um, but one of the random things that I got was Game of Thrones. And they sent me an email. Like, actually, they didn't even send me an email. They called me at 11 o'clock at night asking me if I was in Dublin or in Belfast to go and do some filming. And I, I was just like, what? How did that happen? And then the next day, uh, I'd already booked myself on a flight to Belfast because it was like, what, for Game of Thrones? You're kidding. And I was like, what's the role? Tell me what you want me to be. And they're like, oh, you're going to be like one of the Dothraki guys. And I was a bit like, no, I'm not going to do that because they're sexist. And I don't want to be like a chauvinist guy, like living in like some sort of kind of prehistoric world. I was like, that actually goes against my... Uh, belief structures. I don't want to be conveying that personally. I'm not judging anyone that did. And they're like, no, 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 you're going to be one of the special ones. I was like, okay, well, what does special mean? They're like, well, you're going to be dead. So you're actually going to be uh, working for the Night King. So you're not going to be part of the Dothraki kind of tribe. You're going to be part of the fucking zombie crew. And I was like, okay, I listen to black metal. You know, I like Fucking, you know, white face paint. Scott stuff. Ian did it. Scott Ian did it. You could do it, right? Exactly. Was the, walking the funniest... dead. That was Walking Dead. That was Walking Dead. Sorry, continue, continue to talk Sorry. about that. Um, but the weirdest thing about this is that I've interviewed artists that had been on it. Uh, and Scott Ian actually did both. So he was in The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. Uh, Mastodon. I interviewed them a few times because they ended up being uh, on the set of Game of Thrones. There's like extras in the background. And, you know, like Brent... You know, he's a mate of mine too. He, uh, you know, he looks a bit like a wildling. Come on, he'd admit it. He's got a fucking tribal tattoo over his face and like his hair's just going, Argh. and you know, even the way he plays guitar is like a wildling. Do you know what I mean? That's his tone. That's his scale, the wildling scale. And I'll <laughs> teach you how to play it later. But, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd basically kind of interview people about it. And I got this call and I thought, fuck it. You know what? I'm never, ever going to do something like this. And so 24 hours later, I found myself at 3 a.m. in a ditch in the middle of, like, Northern Ireland, like an hour away from Belfast, looking up at snow, and it was actually snowing, and there was fake snow, and it was, like, freezing cold, like, minus five, like, awful. But I'm dressed like a zombie Dothraki, and there are, like, cameras everywhere, and uh, I did a few scenes with Jamie Lannister, Brienne of Tarth, and uh, Pop, or Pop, I think his name is like the little servant dude. Mm. So I ended up doing a few scenes with them, kind of like more backgroundy, a bit like what Mastodon did. And I mean, they, they paid me for it. So it was like good fun. And it was a wicked story, right? And I've got like selfies and like some video clips and stuff, but I'm scared that like HBO or whoever the fuck it is will sue me if I ever release it. But I did actually <laughs> put out one picture on my Instagram because I thought, fuck it, the season's finished now. You'd have to be a bit of a dick to come and sue me 
you know, the geeky guitar guy in London. Like, there's just no point. But yeah, so I just tried that because I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter how good you get at whatever you do, whether that's uh, playing in a lost symphony or being a writer or being a musician that works from home, that there could always be this undiscovered fucking avenue of life. That there could be this door you never opened. And you could have been like, you know, the biggest thing since whatever, but you just didn't try. Like, you know, Benny could be like the best chef ever of all time. Like he could have invented pizza, you know, but like way back when through a time machine. <laughs> My tower I mean? wouldn't lean. My tower would never lean. It's, it's, so it's worth just even, yeah, even if you're loving life and having so much fun in what you do, like why not try something just random and new? And actually I found it really humbling. Because I went on set and like, you're just like one of the background kind of extra people. No one gives a fuck about you. Like, you know, you, you don't get your own trailer or any shit like that. You know, uh, not that I do as I a love how you just decide you want to act for like a year and then you just end up on Game of Thrones. That's yeah. like such a false <laughs> sense of like, hey, yeah, I've been living in, uh, in L.A. sucking dicks for seven years and I got like one extra scene and like, save me. Stand by no, me. No. I don't know what it was. I don't even know the name of the show. I don't think they released it. You're like, I got into Game of Thrones and they booked my uh, ticket to Belfast as it was really <laughs> snowing with the Ari Alexa camera over here and the red cameras over here. And I did like six seat. Like, okay, dude. Like, you just decided to act and you just decided like you're going to write for a magazine and here we are. You're at all the biggest magazines. Like, you're like apparently the guy. Metallica on two cover articles in different nations. And then you're playing guitar better than me, which is not saying much, but you play fucking unbelievable, and then you're on Game of Thrones! You're like, I moonlit as an actor on all these legit things. Oh, they just released my movie, too. Like, that's cool. So that's our that's our, that's our end of episode rant that we, we always look forward to. Yep. Uh, <laughs> a nice epic recap uh, that we can always expect from Ben. But uh, once again, I mean, that's amazing. Like you, you mentioned that you wear many hats and that just goes to show you're not afraid to pick up another one. <laughs> so it's a great uh, way to end it. Yeah. yeah. Great advice. Thank, Thank you yeah. so much, man. We really, really appreciate it. And, and from the bottom of our hearts, like from Lost Symphony because we we got 2020 into doing this you know the fact it's I, I have to say this and I said this to Maria our PR person uh, who's been behind us and pushed this so hard and she's been so frustrated because we this is our third record and for like you know now for a long time she's been like look at what's going on everybody pay attention how are you not noticing how good this band is like they have Jeff Loomis they, she's like going out of her mind and then finally it's happening so she like thank God to Maria but she uh, she calls me do you want to do a guitar world with Nuno Betancourt? And if you gone back to 14-year-old me playing porn graffiti in three size every story, like on repeat and said, you got to do your favorite magazine ever with your favorite guitarist ever, I would have been like, no fucking way. Yeah, and but it's now, happening, thanks to you. With your favorite journalist as well. So yeah. how about that? You know. It's the triumvirate I've been waiting for all my life <laughs> from the universe. <laughs> the stars align well you know it's just um, it's fun I mean music keeps you young it gives you a reason to live there are so many things in my life that would be shit if it were not for music you know I just think like I don't the reason why I don't get depression or I mean that's a weird thing to say but like I always feel like I have that vehicle and it's so fucking personal with me like if I'm feeling sad I'll just play the blues I'll go on YouTube I'll put on some backing tracks and I'll try and force you know, the melodic minor scale <laughs> over, over blues or, or, or use diminished turnarounds. 
And I'll tell you what, you'll forget whatever's happening in your life. Like, it is the best thing in the world. Like, my wife even tells me, she, she kind of, she sees me when I'm improvising and it's like, it's meditation, really. That's the way I look at it. It's like, you know, I, I don't like the quiet, really, and I don't meditate at all. But when I'm sat there with my guitar, I've just got my eyes shut and I'm just flying around, uh, playing stuff. I'll tell you what. That, so wait, you're makes... saying meditation is tantamount to diminished turnarounds. There you go. There you go, mate. You've got life sussed now, dude. You've got it all sorted. That's the last. Writing that one down. Yep. <laughs> and with that, you've been 2020. Unless yeah. Corey yeah. wants to say yeah. something I was just before say, that. Check out, check out the Guitar World Metallica cover, the Total Guitar, the Kirk interview, Kirk Hammett interview, um, and you know, make sure you follow Amit on all his journeys and his upcoming articles. And we really appreciate you hanging with us, man. And we yeah, look forward so to much. checking out the article, and uh, we'll be following and you. Thank you for shredding forward. for us. You're the first person on this entire show in 102 episodes that's actually played guitar besides me. <laughs> a show with a lot of shredders, by the way. Yeah. So that's awesome. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I'm surprised uh, Russell Satchel, whatever you call him, uh, didn't do that. Yeah, he, he, just, he, missed he, the trick. he showed us the shocker and then yeah. just put it away. He said it smelled good. Yeah, he brought his you shocker guitar out. <laughs> one last thing about Satchel. I feel like our journeys have a connection. And I, I'm a bit of a hippie at heart in that sense. And when I was transitioning into print journalism, Still Panther were one of the early bands I interviewed and they were very new to it all as well. It was their first album. You know, new as in like, oh my God, we're an original band and we're going to write these songs and people in England are going to be talking about us. And the first time I interviewed Russ, because I was such a fan of his soloing and, you know, the fact that he had that Paul Gilbert vibe, obviously they were roommates for a while. You know, just that first time he gave me his email. And ever since we kept in touch and like, you know, that, that, that's the beauty of this job, you know. It's how I've met you guys. I mean, Siobhan, you're back in my life. Yeah. You ran away for four years, but I hunted you down. <laughs> Benny, do you know what? Like, total recall, Benny. I've already texted him and told him to fuck off. You're my favorite Benny. You're my third tit, Amit. You're my third tit. You're the, one, you're the extra tit on top. Corey, you spell your Corey name differently to Corey Taylor, so you don't have to compete with him. That, that's, so that's, why, that's why my parents picked it, I believe. So exactly. It worked out great. What do you think, Corey exactly. Taylor? Do you think Blabbermouth's writing right now what does Corey Taylor think about Corey Peza's name? <laughs> if they want if they want the clicks and the views, that's what they'd be doing. That's the important. Uh, oh, I love it. I'll tell you what, if there's any band <laughs> I've fucking missed over lockdown, it's been Slipknot. Like uh, one of my best friends, V-Man, he's their bass player. He's from England. I love it that the bass player from Slipknot is an English guy. And I'll tell you what, you think I shred? That guy's fucking evil. He's the gnarliest guitar player ever. So when he got the gig, you know, and like ever since, you know, whenever they play, it's just, oh my God, mind-blowing just to watch it. Um, you know, and that's just part of this fun. You know, you, you get to meet people, you stay in touch. So you don't get on with everyone either. Sometimes, you know, an interview might not go according to plan or, you know, the reception with Nuno might be a bit shit and you might not become <laughs> friends with him. But now... I am friends with them because the second call went well. So there you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll certainly have to have you back to talk more, uh, you know, with your perspective and, and your background. It's, it's fascinating. We would really you come back? It, like, would you actually want to? Like, would you want to come back? Because I feel like there's a, there's a chance you might not. But if you, if you would, we'd appreciate it. Fuck yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> Awesome. Let's, do, let's do it live in person one day as well. Hell yeah. Hell if you yes. come to Boston, you are invited anytime. It's an open invite. Please, please message me if you're in Boston. We'd love to show you around. 
right on. Well, after after meeting all of your guitars, I will certainly fucking hold you to that, mate. So, uh, <laughs> Benny, much love and all the congrats on all the success that you're having right now. And to the rest Thank of you, you too, so lovely to meet you, Corey. You, you as well. I love your questions. You've been uh, really, really fun to talk to. It's been my pleasure. We've been Megadeth. <laughs> We've been 2020. 2020-D.com. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode 103 featuring Doc Coyle of Bad Wolves and the X-Man podcast. Check it out. I'm kind of addicted to being wrong, right? Like, when you, because when you're wrong, you learn something. And when you, like, and I think when you're, when I was younger, I was like 24, 25, whatever, you, you have a very definitive view of the world and then when you start to realize that you're wrong about things you go oh okay so i gotta like you know there's so much um inherent biases that we have so if i'm let's say i'm mr left-wing person right i'm there's certain information that's going to be appealing to me because it reinforms the way i see the world you know uh reaffirms the way i see the world and there's certain stuff that if i accept it to be true it would dismantle my whole identity so i can't let it i have to ignore the stuff that's so when you start getting rid of, rid of that and you go, actually, what I want to do is hear information that's counter to what I believe, because it's going to make me either it's I'm going to it's going to learn to be true and I'll evolve and I'll expand my scope on something or it'll it'll kind of like make you realize, oh, I'm kind of on the right path and I think it's figured out. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.